गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तद्भक्ताय नमो नम गुड मॉर्निंग टू ऑल ऑफ यू वी आर कंटिन्यूइंग टुडे विद आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स ऑफ राधिकल पर्सनलिज्म Uh, today is the tenth lecture where we will be talking about non-dual thinking, part two, hmm? learning and complementing from other traditions. But as usual, let's make first one's brief recap about last lecture, first part of non-dual thinking, where we talk about how everything is one but never impersonal. Hmm? So we established this point that our Gaudiya tradition is a non-dual tradition. Uh, but this is not the same as radical non-dualism or Advaita Vedanta, nor it is the same as dualism as a materialistic, fragmented framework, so to say. You know? uh, we share some very important, so to say, uh, evidence from our tradition that proves how reality is non-dual from the Srimad Bhagavatam, the idea of Advaita Gyan Tattva mentioned there, which basically means that reality is non-dual, consciousness. Reality is, non, is conscious and it's non-dual. Advai, Gyan, Tattva, reality. That, which means reality is self-existent and there's nothing that exists independent of it. So everything is interconnected with its source. We have Shakti Mam, Krishna, the source of all energy, and we have Shakti, the principle of the potency in different forms. But all of them are interconnected with one another. There is not something existing separate from that. So our tradition is non-dual. It's not radical non-dualism, but it's non-dualism after all. So we may call it non-radical non-dualism or nuance non-dualism uh, or Achintya Veda Ved, which is basically the official name that, through which we name our metaphysics, Gaudiya metaphysics. So we share some further examples of non-dual <clears throat> non-duality by quoting again the Bhagavatam, the vision of the Uttam Bhagavat, where he sees Krishna in everything, everything in Krishna, similar verses in the Gita, which basically pronounce the same idea. God is everything and everything is God, in one sense, of course, not only in the sense of Advaita Vedanta. More specifically, everything is in God and God is in everything, hmm? even in each heart, even in every atom, as we mentioned. Uh, panentheism will be another way of referring to this idea. <clears throat> so that said, also as Gaudias, we, we have some risk, so to say, because we are such a specified tradition, extremely specified in details and diversity, so to say devotional diversity. So this, if we don't have a proper non-dual foundation in place, this can lead to um, some form of fragmented conception of God, thinking, okay, Krishna is over there in Vrindavan, Paramatma is here in the atom, and Mahaprabhu is over here in the altar, but Narsimha Dev is someone else, and what to speak of all the rest of the pantheon. So we can become dualistic and see the divine in fragmented terms, so to say. Uh, so we have to know how to separate them properly, because if not, we may become not only dualistic, but even polytheistic. We may speak about conceiving different gods. Also, we may speak about one god, but in our inner way of conceiving reality, we may be thinking three Vishnus, five in the Panchatattva, five gods over there, ten in the Dasavatar, 
um, three Krishnas, Mathura, Dwarka, all different guys. No, it's only the same non-dual absolute. But having so much diversity can lead to that dualistic framework. And on top of that, we have so much <clears throat> historical opposition to radical non-dualism that it can even unconsciously lead us to some rejection to every form of non-dualism, including ours. <laughs> so we have to be careful. Uh, so we spoke about that also, why it is so difficult for us as Gaudias <clears throat> to see our non-dualistic side. Again, one of them may be this opposition to Advaita Vedanta from time immemorial, uh, but also lack of training in conceiving and seeing reality in non-dual terms. Again, it's not just a matter of presentation and adjusting our language to now speak in a cool way about non-dualism, but it's a matter of conception, how to properly conceive reality as Shastra is showing in non-dual terms. Of course, when we spoke about non-dualism, we also make it clear that we are not demonizing, stigmatizing dualism, which is also a, a part of reality, a part of life. The word dualism is included in the word non-dualism in Sanskrit, dwai and adwai. So we are not rejecting it, but just mentioning that to deal with the ultimate answers and questions, dualism is not enough. It can help us to deal with life on certain level, but in certain level, of course, reality is ultimately non-dual, so we need to take shelter in that framework, framework as well. And we concluded our previous class by analyzing some further consequences of remaining in dualistic thinking. And when I say dualistic thinking, I'm not referring, for example, to Madhvacharya's Dwaita, philosophical system. He's not dualistic. He's just pro proposing a system which opposes Advaita Vedanta. So I make it clear when I'm saying dualistic here, I mean fragmented consciousness as we may exhibit as conditioned souls. <clears throat> not only, as I mentioned, by conceiving God in dualistic terms, different gods over here and over there, even polytheistic, but also we can be dualistic in the way we conduct ourselves in life, how we relate to others, how we relate to everything, how we can end up being fundamentalist, narrow-minded, uh, again, fragmented consciousness, fragmented in our relationships with everything, us and them, templates, a divide between this world and the next, like a dichotomy that is not possible to reconcile. So all these are types of dualistic patterns, uh, not like some whatever, lack of capacity of relating with this body, this body and the soul and creating like a very extreme separation between matter and spirit, what on one level Krishna himself comes to the world and validates the existence of this planet, which is nothing but one of his energies, which properly addressed can be a portal into transcendence. So again, we try to warn ourselves about, we have an hyper-personalized theology, but be careful of representing it in a depersonalized way, which is close to the idea of impersonalism, which is the nemesis of radical personalism. And we shared some homework also in, re in relation to reflection. Let's reflect about how non-duality or a lack of non-duality uh, may be affecting the way we engage in our practice, the way we relate with others, how a lack of proper non-dual foundation may be affecting that. So that was the homework. I hope that helped. And today we are continuing <clears throat> with the second part 
of non-dual thinking, the last part on, on this series. So let's begin by giving a brief unpacking or explanation of today's title, which is Learning and Complementing from Other Traditions, which somehow is connected to the, bas the basic premise of today's talk is connected with the last class, when we mentioned, okay, reality is non-dual. So if reality is non-dual, as it is, then we should be able to discover the same non-dual foundation in other spiritual traditions which are mystical, which are non-dual, basically. And not only discover that same non-dual foundation in them, but even learn from them and learn to relate to them as a crucial aspect of radical personalism. One of the different facets of radical personalism is to be learning from other traditions with, with, with whom we share this foundational common ground of non-duality. So, of course, when I'm saying even learn from others, I'm not kind of saying that everyone should learn and complement from other traditions on a certain level and those who do not do so are lacking in, their, in some foundational way and they are not Gaudias completely and they cannot enter the spiritual world or whatever. <laughs> but I'm saying that at least the potential is there. There is a potential to learn from other traditions, to nourish our practice from other traditions in a way that is not confusing and affecting our practice negatively. So even if we do not do that, don't feel like that, at least we should acknowledge the, the possibility of that to happen in a proper place. To acknowledge such a thing in principle and allow for that possibility to happen if, if in some cases that is something necessary and inspiring for some devotees. Mm -hmm. So of course, again, needly, when I'm saying this, this, is not an, this won't be an excuse to become like excessively new agey and say, okay, I will learn from everyone. I don't want to limit myself to one tradition and I take from everyone. And at the end of the day, you are not committing yourself in any direction. But the learning from anyone is an, is an excuse to say, I'm not commit with anyone. Uh, so we don't want to promote that. Of course, this is not what we are trying to say here. But there is a place to learn. There is a place, sorry, to learn from the diversity of, of other traditions with maturity of vision, uh, as Bhakti Thakur will say, no? like he go, he went to a church or to a mosque and, oh, let's see how my Krishna is being worshipped here. Mm. So he's connecting the dots. No? Okay, my Krishna is here, but he's being addressed, worshipped a lot in this particular way. And again, there is place to acknowledge that, appreciate that, and even nourish our own sadhana and conception from that. Mm. Because as we already said, Remember, how you see anything is how you see everything. Mm. So how you relate to something shows, speaks about how you're relating to everything else apart from that something. It's not that something you can totally separate. Mm. So in this sense, it's really all or nothing. Mm. I like grace, but sometimes <laughs> black and white have their place as well. Mm. So it's how you see anything is how you see everything. In other words, either you see the divine in all created things, in all mystical traditions, or you don't see the divine anywhere at all. It's not, a, I only see the divine in my tradition and all of them, the rest are devoid of that. Then that speaks of how little you see the divine in your own tradition. So it's all or nothing in this case. And gradually we should evolve into that direction. Especially for us who are monotheist, monotheistic tradition, we should be the first to recognize God is one. There's only one God. There are not many 
gods, we should be the first ones to recognize this truth. Now, for example, even the Abrahamic faiths, they will say the same thing. One God, we believe in one true God. And this doesn't mean, which happens to be the one I worship, and all of you are not worshiping that same God. So sorry for you, no. So if we really believe our own tenets, then we are clearly all in the same camp, basically. There are different tents in the camp, but we are in the same camp. <laughs> so there are, there are different mystical traditions. We are not trying to say here they're not, to cancel all that diversity. But ultimately, these genuine mystical traditions represent various approaches to the same ultimate reality. Although, unfortunately, of course, some immature practitioners, which will always be there, and we may be one of them, and we are trying to grow out from that. Some immature practitioners may be fighting over and over again about, about no, I'm right, you are wrong, this is the right God, and the, my conception is the only possible one, like the famous Sufi poem that of the elephant and the blind man. You may know that, that there was an elephant, and I don't know, five or six blind men approached the elephant, and each one went... No one touched the tusk, other touched the, the feet, the, the, the legs, other touched the tail. So everyone reached their own conclusions. Okay, elephant means something soft. No, it's something very strong or this something very whatever. And each one had their very firm convictions and all of them were wrong. No? <laughs> all of them were partially right, but totally wrong in, in the bigger picture. So, so that's how sometimes we <laughs> do our partial approach to our own tradition in, with blind faith like this blind man, I'm thinking, this is all, this is the bird, the only thing, and the other one will think the same, and we will be fighting forever instead of acknowledging probably both of us are wrong. <laughs> and reality is bigger than what we can conceive. So when I'm saying this again, I'm not saying all religions are the same, all mystical traditions lead to the exact same point in transcendence, so to say. Of course, that idea will may sound appealing to our longing for human togetherness. All is one, and ultimately we will be all one. But of course, also on inspection, this stance can prove to be the trickiest one, if you will. If you don't have that with maturity and sincerity, that's not very substantial. So the real question will be among, regarding religious differences, what's, what's essential, what's negotiable, so to say, no? <laughs> We have something in common, we may have some differences, how to find that <clears throat> proper ground to relate to one another. So regarding what's essential between these mystical traditions, monotheistic mystical traditions I'm referring when I'm saying this, of course each mystical tradition will have its own details that make them unique. Mm -hmm. uh, but I will say that before entering into the details that make all of these traditions unique, even before entering the very details of our own tradition, it's important that first we, we, we learn to understand there is a non-dual foundation. Remember, we are speaking about non-duality here. So before going to the ultimate theological details of Lila, learned that reality is non-dual. Before going to the details of mystical, I don't know, Christianity or Islam, whatever, first learn that there is a non-dual foundation there. So then on the basis of that foundational underlying common ground of non-duality that we all share, that all mystical traditions share, we can speak about the details that make this difference in a way that is charming, in a way that adds to harmony. So 
and, and I will be using these two terms interchangeably, you know, like mystical tradition basically means non-dual tradition, a tradition which proposes reality is ultimately non-dual. Mm -hmm. So all religions are not the same in every single sense of the term, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, again, there, there is enough common ground to speak about. We are, we share very, I mean, the same foundation, and we can appreciate each other in a way that may not be threatening to us. There is a place for that. Not everyone may be expert in that, but the possibility is there. Mm -hmm. So we as Gaudias should learn how to relate to other traditions and appreciate them in a way that is not threatening our faith or confusing it. Uh, of course, in a neophyte state, that may not be a recommended exercise, so to say, for because it may create too much confusion. First, you may need to get grounded in your own tradition <laughs> before you, you, you can become too broad and too open and capable of integrating and appreciating the diversity of other traditions. Because if you go too much to other traditions at that beginning point, that may get it may create confusion in your own faith. So first you have to have your, so to say, your Muladhar chakra in place, which is like the basis, foundational chakra. Have that balanced, and then we can speak about other chakras, other things, so to say. So there is unity, but again, how much or how will a novice, a neophyte, appreciate that in a deep way? Because you can say there is unity in lip service to that, render lip service to that idea, and indeed, a neophyte may, may in some cases think, okay, there is commonality among different traditions, but maybe he or she won't have the, the insight, the depth that will have to accompany those words. There won't be a, a realization of the non-dual common foundation. Uh, um, so probably, again, first one may have to become specific in one's tradition in a proper way. May, one may have to be sectarian for some time. That's part of being a baby, baby-like practitioner for all of us probably after being grounded in the details of one tradition one should also be grounded in the shortcomings of one's tradition historically speaking <laughs> uh, to be realistic and to and to how to say not to balance the ups and downs of one's own tradition and eventually we one can go to other other traditions and appreciate the the commonality among those mystical schools mm -hmm. But after going, go, first going up, going through the ups and downs of one's own tradition to be sobered by that and not go to other traditions just wanting to convert everyone or, or, or whatever, prove them wrong. Mm. So in that way, if one does those exercises, first grounded in my tradition, aware of the ups and downs of my tradition, uh, I will go to other traditions and, and, and learn from them in such a way that I can return to my tradition, so to say, in a renewed way doing a full circle that eventually will nourish my own participation in my own tradition. Mm -hmm. So when we speak about being nourished by others, again, I'm not just saying let's have some interfaith dialogue here and there uh, and talking nicely to each other on a more superficial level and, and for a few moments, um, but actually internally we remain sectarian and dualistic and it's more like a sort of <laughs> facade or parade, whatever. Uh, and I'm hearing others, but actually I'm just trying to be nice, but I'm not committing to what, I, what is coming from the other traditions and seeing how do I commit with my tradition and with those traditions in a way that I learn from them, incorporate that. Mm. So again, all this is 
to, to talk about learning from other traditions has to do with deeply discovering the essence of my tradition being expressed differently in other schools. When I when I appreciate the other schools, I re-found my tradition there, being re-expressed from another perspective, in connection to this common non-dual ground. So in that sense, we say it's the same essence taking different shapes. And I, again, will be nourished by that, and I will be able to rediscover my own tradition in a refreshed way, uh, with a refreshed sense of commitment toward my own tradition, with the depth of participation in my own tradition by the grace of this sacred exercise. But again, there's a way to do that with maturity, as I mentioned. If not, the project may end up in confusion and disaster even. <laughs> so many things that have the potential to be a blessing can be a disaster if not properly handled. So, But if we study the reports, so to say, of different wisdom traditions <clears throat> uh, under mystics, we will find surprisingly enough commonality in what they have to share, basically. They will things, they will say something like things are more integrated that they seem, they are better that they, that they seem, they are more mysterious that they seem, uh, than they seem, sorry. So we will hear similar reports from different traditions saying these type of things, including our Gaudiya, Sampradaya. So, <clears throat> So some of you maybe here in this may think, oh, but this is not part of our tradition. That sounds nice. We can accept, but we are at school. Just never proposed that. Well, that's not the case. So let's go to the next section next, and let's try to <clears throat> to analyze how our own Gaudiya tradition is in itself totally about this, totally about uh, appreciating acknowledging the common non-dual foundation and appreciating and learning from other traditions. Some name for this alternative name we can give to this is perennialism. So let's go to the next section. Examples of perennialism in our Gaudiya tradition. But let's first of all define what's perennialism. So the perennial philosophy, peren, perennial means kind of eternal, so to say. So perennial philosophy also referred to as perennialism or perennial wisdom. It's like a perspective in philosophy and in spirituality that views all worlds, religions, religious tradition as sharing, again, one single uh, truth, if you will, one single metaphysical foundation or origin from, will, from which all esoteric, exoteric knowledge sprouts from, but sharing this common ground, sharing a non-dual foundation of reality. And let's go back there once again. And this is also the case in the Gaudiya Sampradaya, perennialism, and especially, I would say, in connection to, to Bhaktivinoda Parivara and a figure like Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who in, in exchange, interacted so much with modernity and other traditions and somehow extended that same pattern as, as an inheritance from those in his line, so to say. So, uh, of course, when talking about perennialism, I, I like to make a differentiation between what we may call popular perennialism, and mature perennialism. Mm -hmm. So perennialism in general will speak in terms of unity amongst the, what sometimes is called the wisdom traditions, which generally includes Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, sometimes esoteric Buddhism. However, I would say it is not accurate to say, for example, that the non-existent soul that some branches of Buddhism contemplate is the same idea of Atma in Advaita Vedanta, 
or the or the affection that the Christian has for God the Father and in that particular conception is the same thing of Madhurya Rasa and Gaudi Vaishnavism. So in one sense we cannot just force everything is the same in every single way which sometimes, sometimes this popular perennialism tries to make. Like at the end of the day it's all the same in every single sense. So that's not mature perennialism. So this quote-unquote accommodation of popular perennialism it's more like a forced, how to say, homogenization, homogenization, whatever. <laughs> like a sentimental sense of unity, mm-hmm. but not a comprehensive one, mm-hmm. which is possible, but it's possible through mature perennialism, mm-hmm. through which we will acknowledge certain obvious differences, for sure, but also similarly embrace, again, this non-dual foundation. Of reality in all main mystical traditions. When I say this again, I point mostly to monotheistic mystical wisdom traditions. <clears throat> so, since we also refer to perennialism as Gaudius in connection to Bhakti Nathakur, I'd like to share with you a little excerpt from one talk he gave once called the Bhagavad. It's philosophy, it's ethics, and it's theology, I think, which was made kind of a book, but it was a lecture he gave once. Uh, the whole Lecture could be shared as an example of perennialism, but I will just share a few sentences. You can go there in detail for more. So he says like this. There will be a few excerpts from different sections. He says, Our Shastras, or in other words, books of thought, do not contain all that we could get from the Infinite Father. So it's not only everything is in my book. The great reformers will always assert that they have come out not to destroy the old law, but to fulfill it. Balmiki, Vyasa, Plato, Jesus, Muhammad, Confucius, Confucius sorry, and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu assert the fact either expressly, expressly or by their conduct. So again, here he's mentioning so many people from so many different traditions. It may be that both the Christian and the Vaishnav will utter the same sentiment, but they will never stop their fight with each other, only because they have arrived at their common conclusion by different ways of thought. Of course, he's not saying everyone is doing that, but he says typically we may see that. But they are reaching to a very similar place, at least in terms of non-dual foundation. They're just fighting because the way they reach there is different in, in some in some details, in some terms, in some forms. So this is what Bhakti Nautakur says. Some devotees may say, well, but that was Bhakti Nautakur in his early days before being officially initiated as a Gaudiya Vaishnava, so he had that type of mood. But then he became more kind of sectarian or more concentrated on his own tradition. Okay, but that doesn't deny what he said there. And he was already a Gaudiya Vaishnava at that point, and he was Bhakti Nautakur, just in case. So, and even if you want to take that as a stage that he went through, he went through that stage, that filter. And we can see that he's going through so many filters in one single lifetime, which is kind of surprising. It's not common to see that. And with that, he's showing that even if you want to see that, okay, and at some point you may be even more absorbed in your tradition exclusively, there is place to go through that. And also there is place to, in other cases, to continue appreciating and relating to other traditions in advanced stages. It's not just, okay, that's only for the beginners. Eventually that will, it's not that every single journey will 
express itself in the exact same way. So there is place even to appreciate, unlearn, and relate to other traditions in very advanced stages of our practice. So that's a reply to that particular argument. No, that was just, let's just miss that because that's what Bhaktivinoda Thakur in his non-officially, fully-fledged Vaishnav, whatever. <laughs> I will see how this principle is in many other parts of our Gaudiya tradition, even before Bhaktivinoda Thakur. So let's share some examples of that. Other, way, other ways to speak in, in terms of perennialism in Gaudiya Sampradaya will be through the term Sanatan Dharma. Sanatan Dharma is a Hindu term, but Gaudiyas also <clears throat> use it. Bhaktivinotakur uses it a lot in his Jaiva Dharma. Sanatan Dharma means kind of something of eternal function of the soul, so to say. <clears throat> and for the Vaishnavas, there is only one Sanatan Dharma because the soul is, is all the all souls are one in terms of constitution, so the function of the soul is the same for all souls. So there are only there's only one religion in that sense. There's only one dharma, sanatan, which is eternal, which plays itself out in different degrees in different religions, or we will say in different nuances, also through different religions, not necessarily degrees. No, who has more or who has less, but it can be different. But all our sanatan dharma express in different ways. So we go this have this type of universal conception in terms of sanatan dharma. So let's share some examples of how our shastras propose this unity in terms of, of the non-dual, non-dual nature of reality. So to begin with, comes to mind a term from the Mahaupanishad, we say Basudaiva Kutumbakam, which means there is no more than one family. The world is one family. We somehow is, is speaking in terms of all are all is one. We are all sharing something in common that makes us part of one family. We share a common father, if we want to talk in family terms. <laughs> Krishna says in the Gita, pradapita, I'm the seed-giving father. So we all have the same universal father, so to say. We are part of one family. Mahaprabhu himself, <clears throat> he met with Muslims in his lifetime. Some say that he met even with Guru Nanak, uh, although that's not confirmed. And again, it's not that he converted everyone or he fought, fought was fighting with everyone. They had nice interactions. <laughs> or when we, when Mahaprabhu traveled south in India, he met with different Ram Bhaktas and he nourished their faith. He appreciated that and he himself was nourished by that. He was not just converting everyone on his way. Respect, he was respecting their faith. Now, a famous example is that of Ram Das, who was so absorbed in Krishna and Ram Lila and cooking and say, I can't, we will, let's go to the forest to look for some roots and cook. And then well, Mahaprabhu it's lunch ready. How can we think about eating? Sita has been kidnapped by Ravan. So Mahaprabhu appreciated his faith. And then he brought back when he returned a page from Kurma Purana showing Sita was never kidnapped by Ravan. It was a Maya Sita. So he was nourishing his faith. He was from a different religion, so to say. I mean, it's, it's another form of Vaishnavism. It's another religion, strictly speaking. And he shows similar things with Balava, the brother of Rupa and Sanatana, who had this affinity for Ram, with Murari Gupta. Mahaprabhu was inspired by that. It's not that, oh, you're Ram Bhakta, this is disturbing to my, to my Braja faith or whatever. So that's another example from the very deity and founder of our Sampradaya. Jiva Goswami, his Satsandarvas, which is such a foundational text, 
he quotes repeatedly acharyas from other sampradayas to, to, and takes his concepts and makes them part of his own sampradaya. So that's a very big, he's quoting Ramanuja Acharya, Madhva Acharya, he's even quoting Sankara Acharya, not only to refute him, <laughs> so he's quoting great personality from other religions, technically speaking, other traditions, and taking many of his teachings and presenting them in the context of the Gaudiya Siddhanta. So, so you see how much he can like, import, if you will, this, this wisdom and integrate that with his own tradition. Rupa Goswami in Bhaktira Sambrita Sindhu, he's using the terms Mariad and Pushti, sometimes quoting that as examples which are turned from the Balab Sampradaya. And it's known that he had interaction with Balabhacharya and they were friends and they were, he was invoking his terms in his book. <laughs> so all this shows that our Acharyas were not only familiar with these systems uh, uh, and, and, and that they were, they were not only quoting them to refute them, but sometimes not only appreciating them, their lying common foundation, but even learning from them, incorporating some of his their concepts in their own philosophy. Mm-hmm. So there is place for this, as we can see. No? Another famous example is Haridas Thakur, who was born as a Muslim, as we know. And remember, he's Brahma, so he's the in one sense the founder of the Sampradaya, Brahma Madhva Gaudiya Sampradaya. So let's see what the founder of our Sampradaya, Brahma, says has to say as Haridas Thakur in connection to appreciating other traditions. So there's a verse in Chaitanya Bhagavat which Haridas Thakur says, I will read it. Dear Father, the Supreme Lord is one for all living entities. The difference between the Muslim God and the Hindu God is in name only. All scriptures, whether the Quran or the Puranas, state that there's only one Supreme Lord. He is the non-dual, eternal, transcendental absolute truth, infallible and perfectly complete. And in that capacity he resides in everyone's heart. The Supreme Lord's transcendental name and qualities are glorified throughout the world by various scriptures. The Lord accepts each individual's mood of surrender. When you are violent to others, you are being violent to the Lord himself in everyone's heart. So here we have another clear example. <laughs> and another very important example that I always like to invoke in this regard is the one found in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, which is basically the first book in the Gaudiya Sampradaya. If we conceive Gaudiya Sampradaya's beginning with Mahaprabhu, the very Goswami Granta, the first Goswami Granta, or books from the Goswami's Sanatan Goswami's Brihad Bhagavatamrita. And again, that's the first work of the Sampradaya, which kind of sets a clear precedent for many things. The main character is in Sakyarasa, who shows the possibility of that, but also things like this. Gopakumar, in his journey toward Braj, as we know, we, he goes through different layers, planets, personalities, religious conceptions. Srila Samras will say he goes through different paramparas before he reaches the Brajalila. And he's inspired by their faith. Like when he finds Hanuman in Ayodhya, and he doesn't try to convince him, come with me with Golok, or Hanuman doesn't try any of the same thing. He, act- he actually asks Hanuman, chants the glory of your Lord. And Hanuman starts to glorify Ram. And Gopakumar sees his faith in Braja Krishna nourished by that. And then the opposite happens. Hanuman says, glorify Krishna. He starts to glorify Braja Krishna in Sakya Bhav. Hanuman says, Jai Sri Ram. <laughs> so this is the perfection of the interreligious dialogue, so to say. No? Because both of them understand 
we are speaking about the same person. <laughs> the Lord of Gopakumar, Gopakumar's Lord and Hanuman's Lord are the Lord. <laughs> so, not only they appreciate each other, not only they tolerate each other, they are nourishing each other through that exercise. So we have this non-dual foundation with all is one, all is part of the same project. Famous verse in the Gita, 4.24. Some of you may know it. This ritual is one, the food is one, we who offer the food are one, the fire of hunger is one, all action is one, we who understand this are one. Bhagavad Prasad Ki Jai. So this is a verse that speaks about how everything had the potential to be part of the same project. That's part of developing a non-dual thinking. Everything is totally, can be totally connected. It's totally connected and, and has the potential to be engaged as such if we develop the proper appreciation. So this extends to other traditions. Indeed, in our Bhaktinath Paribar, we have this Siksha Paramparas as, as shared not only by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, but even Baladev Bidyabhushan before he did so. And in this Siksha Parampara, personalities like Ramanuja and Madhvacharya are included, which in one sense we could say Ramanujacharya is not part of the Gaudiya Sampradaya, but he's put in the Parampara. <laughs> no? Again, he's from another religion. No? Imagine if someone puts Jesus Christ in one Siksha Parampara, some Gaudiya's may like, what are you doing? But if they look at their own Siksha Parampara, well, oh, Ramanuja is here. That's not the same religion. But they are included because they are enriching our own school. They're nourishing our prospects. So following that line of thought, I can and I will and I do respect someone like Thomas Merton, for example, because, I mean, I'm nourished by his contribution and life example and some other person, many other personalities. Uh, but at the same time, I may not fully respect someone from the Gaudiya tradition if that person's example mutilates and distorts their real teachings. So that can happen. Bhaktivinoda will even speak in terms of Kali Chelas or disciples of Kali Yuga who appear disguised as Gaudiya Vaishnavas but actually are agents of Kali, so to say. Mm -hmm. So at this point, of course, some, someone may valid, ask in a valid way, but if we expose ourselves to other traditions, uh, that may create some scars, impressions in us from their conception, from their mood, and that somehow may affect or divert our Gaudiya focus or conception or mood, whatever. I mean, it may create some confusion on some level. Some may ask that. And again, as we mentioned, in the, for a beginner, that may happen. So there's place for being properly, having a proper uh, boundary in certain stage. But uh, again, there's place for that experience in, in a healthy way, as we already mentioned. And when we speak about some scars and being affected by the influence of others or receiving those impressions, I will say, or please bear in mind, that some scars not only the impression you receive from that other creates in us, but how we choose to receive those impressions, how we choose to process those some scars, that will create, that will be the most defining aspect of all. Not only what comes from the other person, but how you choose to incorporate that in yourself. So there's my point is there is place to incorporate those influences in a way that nourish our practice. So again, following this line, we can properly associate with a mystical Jewish person, if you will, a mystic Jewish, 
in a way that beautifully nourishes my Gaudiya faith, and we can associate with another Gaudiya in such a way that is interfering with my inspiration in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <laughs> so what's more comprehensive, what's more favorable in that sense? Hmm? So remember, we have, we have not been commanded to love our religion, we have been commanded to love God and our neighbor, sometimes it is say, even if they happen to be in another religion. So let's bear that in mind. So any th some thoughts about examples from our Gaudiya tradition in connection to this idea of perennialism? So let's continue with the next section, which we will, of course, continue evolving around this idea of not only appreciating our traditions, but especially let's concentrate now on being nourished by them. So let's speak about theological cross-pollination and the possibility of complementarity. So as we already mentioned, <clears throat> each tradition has a goal. Each goal is an ontological possibility of its own, and it's okay, no problem. Gaudiya Vaishnavism has its very distinctive, unique uh, goal in eternity, prospect. Uh, but again, as we have spoke last class, if we don't deal with such specificity properly, this can lead to dualism, this can lead to polytheism, this can lead to fanaticism or elitism. No? And the, oh, my goal is like this, we are so sophisticated in that and that. So if we try to integrate and learn from everyone, also mention that, the other extreme. One extreme is I absorbed in the details of my tradition and become an elitist. <laughs> other extreme is I try to integrate other wisdom traditions without, without having proper grounding in my own tradition. And that can become quite confusing. So all these dangers are there. But as we already mentioned, there is a middle point and there is a common ground between different traditions. And there is the possibility, again, not only of tolerating them and them tolerating us <laughs> or appreciating our, ourselves on a superficial level, but even nourished, being nourished by them what we may call cross-pollination, which is not a, necessarily a theological term, but we can employ that in that term. Cross-pollination has to be with the pollen being applied from one flower to another and creating these difference, differences, different some scars, flowers some scars, if you will, and influences cross-pollination. So there's a possibility of theological cross-pollination. And I believe that, that the part of what we may call emerging Gaudiya Vaishnavism, should become mature enough to engage in the theological cross-pollination without necessarily losing uh, its defining features. It's not that this is a risk, we will lose our Siddhanta by doing that. But actually, by doing that, we will enrich, we will expand our own understanding by proper integration. It's all about always proper integration. And again, I'm not saying this for all, every single member of the Sampradaya has to be doing that at some point, not even that. But at least some should be engaged in that process to show that this is possible and how it's possible. So, as we already mentioned, by engaging in this theological cross-pollination, this can lead to a rediscovery of our own tradition, which sometimes is very needed. Many participants of the Sampradaya are somehow stuck, stagnant, bored with their tradition, losing sight of the varieties and depths of possibilities. So this is one way to rediscover your own tradition. Again, whether we are inspired with what someone else says in other tradition, and, 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 and then we return to our tradition to find that same element, 
being actually present there, that's another way. You know, you when you learn from someone else and you realize, oh, that was actually my tradition also. But I never I needed the other tradition to help me rediscover my own tradition. You know, I was hearing the other Richard Rohr saying that he chooses to use the word non-dual, although in Christian lingo they mostly will express in in terms of unitive consciousness. But he feels non-dual fits better. He said non-dual is a term from Hinduism. But it's helping me to go back to my own term and explain and understand it better. So there's no harm. We can do that. So we can, again, go to other traditions and go back to ours and realize, oh, that was in my tradition. Or we can even go to other traditions. Uh, we can reach our own practice with elements from other traditions that were not present in our tradition at all, but can, that, which can be naturally adapted. There's also a place for that. Mm -hmm. An example, classical example is the idea of Lectio Divina in Christianity, how they approach scripture. This is not something that has been part of the Gaudiya Vaishnava's standard reading Shastra, but it's possible. You, know, you can read Shastra, one section, and then reflect what, what's the meaning of this line, and then pray, what's the meaning of this line for me, and then further pray, Krishna, what's for you the meaning of this line? And for you in relation to me, and then hear what he So it's a more contemplative, revelatory, epiphany-like approach to Shastra, not to replace the way we would do, but it's a way that can be naturally adapted. It's not going against the substance of our Sampradaya. So my point is we should be able to, to go to other wisdom traditions and then go back to our tradition and rediscover our tradition with the help of other traditions. It's possible, at least accept that there is such a possibility. So we can stop seeing other traditions merely as a competition, so to say. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or something that needs to be defeated in argument, in debate, or something that needs to be proven inferior. So again, in non-dual terms, we are all on the same project. Mm -hmm. If we are all mystical non-dual tradition, on that common ground, we are on the same project. Mm -hmm. Another example that, that comes to my mind that I... I recently learned here I'm the I'm in the, I'm in a place where there of course Native Americans were the, the original inhabitants inhabitants of the of the area. So it's in the language of American Native Americans there is no word for art. The original word because why? Because for them everything is art. So why will refer to that as something something different from everything else? So they don't have a word for that. So that's like, wow, interesting. We go this have a word for art, <laughs> and I'm not just suggesting canceling that, but we can be inspired by that, that idea, which is not part of our tradition, but can nourish our participation in it. Mm -hmm. and recently, I also read a very beautiful quote from Simon Whale, who she was a Christian mystic and philosopher, and she also kind of engaged in this theological cross-pollination so this quote I will share with you is in relation to rediscovering your own tradition by the grace, so to say, of other traditions. So she says, writing to this is a letter she's writing to someone else. So it says, you can take my word for it too, sorry, you can take my word for it too, that Greece, Egypt, ancient India and ancient China, the beauty of the world, the pure, unauthentic reflections of this beauty in art and science, what I have seen of the inner recesses of the human heart 
where religious belief is unknown, all these things have done as much as the visibly Christian ones to deliver me into Christ's hands as his captive. Mm -hmm. So basically, she's not only speaking about other traditions, she's even saying hearts where religious belief is unknown. So non-religious people, but properly approached, all this is bringing me back at the feet of my istadev, so to say, with further commitment and responsibility. So again, that's a possibility. I'm not saying this is a law for everyone, <laughs> but it's important to acknowledge this prospect. So Simon Well is a very nice example. I'd like to share a few words from other interesting example from one uh, Spanish scholar and Christian mystic called Raymond Panikar. Uh, he was inter specialized in interfaith dialogue and comparative religions. So he will use one term called homeomorphic uh, equivalence between traditions. Uh, he was very acquainted with many traditions, both like, I don't know, eight languages or whatever. So homeomorphic is a math term, a mathematics, a mathematical term that describes two objects as being homeomorphic, if they can bend or mold it into, into one another. Mm -hmm. So Poniker had this notion of homeomorphic equivalence between traditions, where in one tradition, for instance, you have the problem of, I don't know, ego aggrandizement. So in one tradition, that will be handled in one way by a doctrine, and a specific practices related to that doctrine. For example, I don't know, in Buddhism, they will speak about no self. That's a way of dealing with ego aggrandizement, no self. That's not our way, but they deal in that way. Whereas in another tradition, the problem is handled differently. The same problem, but differently. So they, we have the devotional notion of the soul being utterly dependent of God. It's the same idea, dealing with ego aggrandizement, but it's like taking different forms. So he has this idea of, okay, we have different principles, universal ones, but different traditions will bent, mold, if you will, to deal with that differently. But there is one connection. Of course, again, I'm not saying that everything in one tradition has its homeomorphic equivalent <laughs> in another tradition. There may be things that are unique. One tradition may speak of reincarnation, another tradition will not believe in that. So I'm not trying to force that. But again, there are enough of these uh, homeomorphic equivalents while at the same time we have to bear in mind not every tradition is doing necessarily necessarily doing the same thing just in different languages and frameworks. So for example, if a Buddhist talks about love, that's a very different concept than when a Christian or a Gaudiya will talk about love. All the words is the same. So this Raymond Panikar, also he gave once one interesting example. He was thinking, because he was a Christian, although he was open to many other traditions, so he was thinking, what it might mean for Christianity to focus on contributing to the world's faiths instead of dominating them. I mean, he acknowledged that. <laughs> that was mostly Christianity had done for centuries. So in this connection, he used the analogy of three rivers, which were, or are three, at least main of three main world, world's great rivers, you know, the Ganges, the Jor Jor Jordan, Jordan, I don't know how it's in England, one mark one more called Tiver. So these are three rivers hmm, uh, that flows in different places, of course. No, they're not the same river. <laughs> hmm. 
and they are nourishing the lives of the people who live along the banks of those rivers. So one flows through Israel, one flows through Rome, and one flows through India. So we could even connect them to these main traditions, you know, Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism. And so you say all these rivers are never meeting on earth. You know? Each one flows in their own section, but they meet in the heavens, he says, you know? because the water of the rivers eventually condenses into clouds you know? and they go up and in the rain, they then they rain down equally on all the mortals on earth, so to say. So he will say in the same way, the religions in the world may remain distinct, distinct paths, if you will. They're unmixed in that sense. But in one sense, they have a possibility of meeting in some point into vapor, so to say, vapor, and they're somehow metamorphosized into, into the natural, non-dual common foundation. That will be poured down in innumerable places and tongues and combining in improper way. Again, I'm not suggesting a hodgepodge and, or something. So again, we, I'm not saying by this at the end we all be, will be serving in Golok Vrindavan and nothing, but we are pointing to the same non-dual reality. And in that sense, we are meeting in that meeting point, so to say. Some analogy that he's sharing in connection to this notion of theological cross-pollination. <clears throat> so let's continue and conclude with one last section. Uh, but in connection to the idea of theological cross-pollination, speaking of it in, in other words, so let's speak about interfaith and intrafaith dialogue. Hmm? Interfaith and intrafaith dialogues. So we'll try to explain what's the difference between the two of them. Sometimes they say that the classical spiritual journey always begins elitist, but, be, be, but ends egalitarian. No? So in the beginning, again, we are maybe more narrow-minded, my, my own path, this is everything, but eventually you develop this capacity of integration. And as we already mentioned, I think, in some other class, and today also, there's elite exclusivity or elitism in the beginning, and there is a form of exclusivity at the end also, when you enter into the specified ideal of service, in the Kunja Vrindavan, that's pretty exclusive, that's pretty... <laughs> no? But before that exclusivity, and after the initial narrow-minded exclusivity, there has to be some inclusivity in between to promote the healthy exclusivity at the end. So we should be broadening our horizons, if you will, and attain inclusivity between inclusivity before attaining the ultimate elitism in the Lila, so to say. Mm -hmm. Because if we do not do so, then when the time for that happens, we, we, if, if that doesn't happen, we run the risk of becoming a cult, even, in the name. If, if there's no inclusivity, there's only exclusivity from day one and continues being more and more exclusive. That's a cultish scenario. And Gaudiya Sampradaya is not by, in its swarup, in its essence, a cult, but it can be represented in a cultish way. And it can be seen as such by many, even by us. <laughs> or represented as such. So that's not the idea. So something that makes for a cult, it's that the cult is always self-referring. It all goes back to the cult, basically. It's only point of reference. There's no need to learn anything from anyone outside of the boundaries of the cult. 
which of course because the cult contains the most perfect revelation in every single aspect you can conceive so why lose your time looking beyond the, <laughs> the fence so to say and again it's interesting because if you make a study almost every cult starts in a very innocent way and even genuine way but it ends up being a cult becoming a cult becoming cultish so it's a lesson there, no? I mean, some things can happen in between that if you don't work with that properly, cultish template comes. Hmm? At least in some sections. Hmm? So one way for us as Gaudias, we have to deal with this. I remember when we spoke about Appa Sampradayas, we mentioned Gaudia <clears throat> is a Sampradaya. It's not Gaudia Appa Sampradaya, but, but there may be Appa Sampradayic expressions of the Sampradaya. And we may be performing them, representing them. So again, one of the ways for us to deal with this properly and not end up becoming a cult is to proper dialogue, to remain open to other voices outside of our circle, intimate circle. Not only even dialogue among ourselves as Gaudias, which is fair enough to do so as well, but also dialogue with other traditions. Again, a very cultish, apasampradaic expression uh, for example, let's go to an example in our own tradition, an apasampradayic expression of our sampradaya could be again a toxic over-identification hmm, with your own tradition to the point that you are not able to appreciate anything beyond it or to with your, with your sampradaya or with your parivar or with your mission or with your guru or with your temple president it's the same <laughs> hmm. We are terrified about regarding watching beyond the wall of bias that may surround that you have created, and 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 for that to not to happen, you are so terrified that you are just quickly attacking so-called outsiders by quickly labeling them, judging them, and you hide yourself from these so-called enemies, oh, protected. So, quote unquote, no. So again, this is cultish. We have to be careful. In the beginning, this may happen if you are in the we are in kindergarten stage, but our seniors should watch out for that not to continue being the, established as the standard in time. So one of the ways to, again, gradually overcome this is to have meaningful dialogue beyond these walls of bias and fear and prejudice. And one of the options for this dialogue could be what we call interfaith dialogue, to, to talk with other wisdom traditions. <clears throat> so this is again another way of speaking about theological cross-pollination there's synonyms synonyms with theolo uh, interfaith dialogue, dialogue theological cross-pollination but interfaith dialogue just to make a play of words if you want the interfaith dialogue first you have to have intra-faith dialogue inter means with others international with other people intra means with yourself In intra means inter like in Internally, go in, inside. In other words, how to say? As I mentioned, interfaith dialogue is just doesn't mean get together with other people for traditions and look nice for the picture and open-minded to the rest of the world. But actually, in your mind, you are trying to convince them about the superiority of your tradition, getting more people on your side. That's not interfaith dialogue. <laughs> how worth is my tradition above yours? Again, interfaith dialogue means theological cross-pollination. But for this to happen, again, before interfaith with dialogue, before going and talking to other in other traditions, there has to be interfaith dialogue. 
then interfaith dialogue, and then a second further intrafaith dialogue. So what do I mean by that? Let, let me explain myself. <laughs> before having interfaith dialogue, before talking to others, first you have to have a dialogue with your own tradition. In other words, become familiar with your own tradition, as we mentioned, be, be grounded in who you are as a Gaudiya in this case. Know your tradition properly so you are not confused when you speak with others, so you are able to detect the, the, nor, the common non-dual foundation. So you don't see them in a dualistic way or they're different in every sense. You can find common essence and be open and be respectful. But first you have to be grounded in, in your own tradition for that to happen. So that's the first intra-faith dialogue. Dialogue with the Gaudiya tradition as a Gaudiya, so to say. Then you are ready for interfaith dialogue. You can expose your faith to others, respect that, appreciate that, not be confused in your own faith, ideally being nourished. And after that interfaith dialogue, there will be a second interfaith dialogue because after hearing from others, as we mentioned, you return to your own traditions. You never left it, but so to say, <laughs> you return to your own tradition renewed with new eyes, with new concepts. You rediscover your, your dialogue with your own tradition from a new upgraded place. So you will have new tools, new ideas, new inspiration to rediscover your own tradition with the help of other traditions quote-unquote, other tradition. Because how much a tradition is other tradition if it's nourishing down my understanding in my own tradition? How much I can call that other tradition if it's helping me to go deep in my own tradition? <laughs> in one sense, again, there is the same tradition, at least in terms of non-dual foundation. <clears throat> and then come the details of diversity that create the charm as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. So... Of course, if we allow ourselves to this type of interfaith, intrafaith dialogue, uh, and we allow ourselves to draw inspiration from other traditions, again, part of the challenge or part of the commitment is with not only with them, by hearing them, respecting, appreciating, but again, by my own tradition. When I'm going to dialogue with other person, it's not that I'm being unchaste to my tradition. Actually, I'm increasing my commitment because the idea is, I'm, I'm approaching this mystical Christian or Jew or Sufi. How do I rediscover my own, my own this in my own tradition? What, I, what they are saying, how this helps us to nourish my own faith as a Gaudiya. Because again, there is diversity, but there is unity. So we are sharing enough common ground as to allow myself to be nourished by them. So again, if other traditions are helping me with my tradition, in one sense, they are not different traditions. In one sense, at least. At least not totally different. And, and we are promoting radical personalism, which is about developing non-dual appreciation, but also appreciation of the uniqueness and diversity of each, not only individual, but tradition as well, but on the basis of enough common ground. So everything has to be, has to be in place. Mm -hmm. And those endowed with this so-called to say in some ways like contemplative faculty in any tradition those who are able to appreciate, draw, be inspired there are those who are the ones who are capable of seeing beyond the formalities of any tradition and take the, the common essence they are the ones who are able to see beyond the form formalities of their own tradition to begin with <laughs> and understand their tradition in Saragrahi-like terms essential-like 
And then they will be able to see that same essence in other traditions and deliver that essence in a refreshed form constantly. Mm -hmm. And that's, those people are the real representatives of a tradition. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and of course, one point that I think important, another way of speaking about interfaith dialogue, apart from the ones we mentioned, will be to, again, going back to the idea of having a dialogue with our own tradition, and this is not only me getting grounded as a Gaudiya, but also learning to talk between as Gaudias between ourselves. How, how, how much we are having that proper level of dialogue and conversation from Gaudiya to Gaudiya. That's another way of speaking about intra-faith. I'm talking with my own tradition. I'm talking with the members of my own tradition. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to, in the name of talking to other traditions, mm -hmm. I don't want to forget talking with my own tradition because that can be also a form of spiritual bypassing. Now, I love diversity and all these traditions, but I'm not able to watch, to look at the face to someone from my own tradition if, if he's from the other side of the street or something like that. No? Mm -hmm. So that's possible. No? I, I, I'm open to appreciate the beauty of other traditions to avoid dealing with the own mess that I have at home mm -hmm. as a member of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important that we as Gaudias learn and continue relearning. This Gaudiya Vaishnavism is all about love, ultimately. <laughs> but unfortunately, nowadays, there is some kind of uncanny disconnect that you can see between in the Gaudiya community between talking about love and showing love in motion <laughs> in the way you relate to others. No, I mean, we can engage, we can speak about love relatively easy. But to show love in motion, to embody that in our interactions, that demands much more from all of us. And again, how you how you do anything shows everything, speaks about everything. <laughs> so love emotion is something to demonstrate at all times. It's not just once in a year, once in a week, once in a day. It, every single act you are performing. And probably a, a good way to begin to speak about where to start to show love to each other is, well, let's go to one of the most basic levels, dialogue, conversation, cooperation. Cooperation is the beginning of love in one sense. And dialogue is a form of cooperation. Again, what matters about what we say, speak about love, is what we embody. So how much as as we are, we may be talking a lot about love and divine love and lila, but how much we embody the principle of love in the most immediate expression as how we are relating and talking to each other. So how able are, are unequipped we are to talk to one another as Gaudias nowadays and to agree to disagree when, when that happens and respecting our differences and not trying to, to impose dogma on others, how much we feel the need to do those things. So here I'm not talking at this point about attacking other creeds and converting, <clears throat> converting the world to Mahaprabhu's movement. <laughs> but com considering how much we, as, as a community, have perpetrated abuse of Gaudias by Gaudias. Mm. How much that's still happening, how much we still insist on saving the world as an excuse to not work what, what we have to deal at home. Mm. So we, some may say, oh, but we, we, we are not that wild, Maharaj. We don't have the crusades that Christians had. We didn't, we didn't have any, any holy inquisition or anything. 
Yeah, I agree, but we may have our own versions of all that <laughs> on some way or another, even at least online versions of that for sure, but not only online versions. And although all of them express among ourselves, even in this case, not express among other people to be converted <clears throat> to how we treat each other, how kind we are with each other. <clears throat> so radical personalism chooses to emphasize real dialogue in this connection, intra, this version of intra-faith dialogue, which is, again, not about defeating each other, but hearing each other, and even not only about hearing each other, but especially about being willing to be transformed by hearing each other, because that can happen, that should happen, that's love. Love implies transformation, and that's why we are so afraid of it. <clears throat> and not only allowing ourselves to change, but even allowing others to change as well. Because in many cases, we don't allow others to change. Even someone did something wrong at some time, we just label and judge that person for eternity. And that's not generosity, Gaudiya generosity, Gaudiya common sense. So all this is a part of the context of the intra-faith dialogue that I personally feel... <clears throat> should be something very important for us. So let's share some words of conclusion before finishing and just wrapping up our presentation of non-dual thinking. So as we have seen, non-dual thinking is, is to be properly understood, is to be properly applied, not only in connection with our own Gaudiya practice, our own Gaudiya non-dual tradition, but also how to relate uh, to others how to relate to everything, again, to our conception, to reality, but to others, and others, every ad, everyone and everything also include other non-dual mystical traditions. And as it is said, there is one saying that says, God's address is everywhere. Well, if you ask, what's God's address? Everywhere. But no, it's some specific address, everywhere. <laughs> so God's address is not limited to the Gaudiya address book. We may have some particular chamber where he is found, to be found, but there's the address is everywhere. Now, in other words, our niche, niche, you say, doesn't make us superior. Our particular Gaudiya niche, so to say, doesn't make us superior. Bhagavan is honoring each journey, each wisdom tradition, each culture. Bhagavan is not threatened by differences. It is we who feel threatened by differences, not him. So let's not impose those things and ascribe them to God or something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we mentioned, while emphasizing we have a non-dual foundation, non-dual common ground, uh, and even we, there is the possibility of the interface dialogue, mm -hmm. theological cross-pollination. At the same time, we shouldn't try to superficially force, try to force Gaudiya Vaishnavism and all traditions to exactly be the same. Because all these dangers will happen in one extreme, in the other. Because if we do so, if we just try to merge all of them, blend all of them together, each tradition will lose, will lose their own specific flavor, their own specific identity. The uniqueness which creates this value of diversity. Again, we are unity in diversity. One is not at the cost of the other. And all of this is a core value of radical personalism. If in the name of radical personalism you reduce everything to one single thing, that's, we are back in radical non-dualism. <laughs> and that can happen, again, be careful as radical personalists. <laughs> so 
So it's not that every single detail, in other words, my point is, it's not that every single detail from every, every tradition has to be reconcilable or have its parallel in the other tradition. It's not necessarily the case. There are enough common points to share and, and, and learn, but not necessarily everything. But again, enough common ground to appreciate before even, as we mentioned, before even we attempt to enter into the details of each tradition, including ours, we have to see that common ground that we all, all share. So some, some days ago, some, someone told me that he was missing my lectures on Radha Krishna Leela and <laughs> some lectures that I used to give explaining sections of the Bhagavatam. Or, I mean, the person was not complaining, he just was expressing uh, some nostalgia, so to say, some separation from certain topics. But to be honest, and I'm sharing in part what I say to, to him, is that I don't think that what I, we are talking in this particular series is divorced from this idea of Radha Krishna Leela, of the hike, the hiked and the converging point of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. And for me, the topics of, of radical personalism are not just a related topic. Somehow we can connect. But for me, they are crucial <laughs> foundational bricks, so to say, to access the reality of Lila in a realistic way, in a mature way, in a sustainable way, what we have been talking about non-dual foundation, about individuation, about attending our humanness as a sadakas, and how that corresponds with the full humanity as a siddha in the Lila, uh, and so on. And the topics we are sharing here, for me, it's completely intimately tied. Our highest esoteric zenith <laughs> must be founded correctly on something. I mean, it must be founded on, on proper understanding, practical application of the most basic common sense teachings, if you will. If you lose this sense of Gaudiya common sense, I mean, you can end up being a Gaudiya nonsense. You know? And Gaudiya, no, Gaudiya Bajanism is not nonsense, but we can be nonsense <laughs> in representing it. So although some of my the topics I'm presenting may seem disconnected for some, Again, this series is totally in the service of, of the proper attainment of the ultimate highest goals of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Mm-hmm. In one sense, the spirit of this series is kind of, let's talk about something basic in the highest possible way. Let's talk about non-dual foundation, humanity, integration of certain elements, whatever we may be talking about, but as deep as we can. Mm-hmm. Instead of, let's talk about something high in a very basic way, which sometimes happens and that's really not very attractive, not very unbecoming actually. In other words, the bigger picture necessarily includes the, the smaller picture, so to say. Now, for example, Mahaprabhu's highest compassion is to give to the world Unnatavuj Balaprem, the type, the extension of his own experience in his heart. And that form of compassion necessarily includes all other forms of quote-unquote lower compassion, not lower, but all other forms of compassion which are not that one are included in his highest compassion. And probably most people require all these other layers of compassion as well. Uh, but that the fact that they are included doesn't mean that we are aware of that. You follow? We may speak of Mahaprabhu's highest compassion, but we may not be aware of all the other layers of compassion that are included there, and we are not able to relate to them and understand our need for that. And, and, and we have to honor them properly. So that's the attempt of this series. Now we are maybe not talking about what's going on in the Nikunja between Rahad and Krishna intimately, but we are speaking about elements that are necessarily included in that highest equation. 
So it's a way of speaking about that. And for us in our particular stage, journalists, it's, it's important to hear about those things so we understand all the things is part of that. And we don't develop, again, some dichotomy, fragmented understanding of what's going on in the Lila, what's going on in here, so to say. So we'll continue talking about, we're finishing here our section of non-dual thinking, but somehow this will be a, a permanent theme, all-pervading topic in, in the next section, some of this, at least, that we will talk in the future on contemplative prayer or knowing through unknowing and darkness. I mean, all that will have a lot of this non-dual thinking foundation. So let's conclude here today and share some homework for those who would like to be good pupils, <laughs> students. So let's try to reflect on how do you relate with the wisdom of other traditions and how much you feel you can learn and complement from them. It's basically a reflection of what we shared today How, on a personal level. How do you relate personally on, with the wisdom of other traditions? How much you feel you can learn and complement from them? And hopefully those answers give you some clear guidance to know what to do in, in practice. Mm -hmm. so if there are any questions or doubts, we will continue talking through the thread, through the week. And next Tuesday, we will start a new section between in, inside this series on Guru Tattva, which will be probably the longest one in the whole series, I think seven classes at least. <laughs> so the very first talk on Guru Tattva will be about the difference between Guru with small g, and Sri Guru, with capital letters, so to say. So somehow it's, there is a connection. Again, we are trying to connect one topic to the other, individuation and non-dual thing. We already talked about individuation, which had, had a lot to do with diversity and uniqueness, specificity. Now we have talked about unity and non-duality. So next we will address a tattva, which somehow includes both unity and diversity, since the principle of Sri Guru represents is said to be one and different from Bhagavan himself. There's unity, there's diversity, and especially we will try to analyze Guru Tattva from not so typically explored sections, no? sections that are not generally addressed uh, in our Gaudiya community. So we'll continue with that on the next, next Tuesday, and since we invoked uh, Guru Tattva also in two days, we are celebrating Sri Nityananda Triodasi, who is the origin the origin of Guru Tattva, Kanda Guru Tattva. So may all of you this next Thursday may have a very special celebration of Sri Nityananda Triodasi. Sri Nityananda Prabhu Ki Jai, Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, <coughs> Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramananda Hari Hari Gaur, Vancha Kalpataru Vyascha, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrindaki Jai Gaur Hari Hari Bhur.